Hey everybody, welcome to 2ZQ Hot Takes, where we discuss issues both big and small. I am your host, the very handsome Tim Kirk, and today I'll be talking about conscious and consciousness. I love how irksome people who are pleased with themselves refer to every minuscule thing they somehow accomplish, one slight notch above monotony, and everyone they know who can walk and chew gum is also amazing. Everything is superlative or non-existent. There is no middle ground. You're amazing or completely snubbed aiding and abetting this puerile train of thinking. Hap, 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 happy talk. My dad would refer to these people as unconscious. My dad was referring to people being oblivious to whatever context they were in and was fond of saying, when in Rome, do as Romans do. It's one thing to be motivated. It's another thing altogether to know when to shut up. Conscious and consciousness have a very wide range of meanings, and there is a great deal of subject matter devoted to them. Biological, psychological, metaphysical, philosophical, yeah, well, we'll split the difference there, and many more. The essence of this podcast is to remind people to be aware of yourself and the world around you. Context. My philosophy of look where you're going, pay attention to what you're doing, say excuse me, please, thank you, and you're welcome when appropriate, and get out of the way meshes with a good deal of all of the subject matter, in my mind, of course. And I know that seems quite vulgar, but vulgarity is part and parcel of consciousness. Otherwise, we wouldn't know what it is. So, to that end... One thing that annoys me, and I am completely guilty as well, is the idea that what is fallaciously referred to as stream of consciousness as a valid method of self-expression for many individuals, particularly while drunk or stoned or high or in a chemically altered state of consciousness. I call it CLEP because you can witness this nonsensical gibberish in New York City all day, every day. Also, believe me, nobody is that interesting especially when not particularly sober. People exhibit some sort of bravado which infers confidence in thought and speech, but the execution is much less impressive in most cases. That's why we have digests of work. Go home and think about it. Write it down and look at what flowed from your mind. You are nowhere as interesting as you think you are. Nobody is. Just mull, condense it into a less difficult-to-follow example, story, or whatever inward retreat you have taken, and do some editing before you impose it on the rest of the world. Really, be quiet. You sound like an idiot. And and all of those lone stoners and drunks who just babble no matter, at one time had an audience that became bored and apathetic to their thought processes long, long ago. Do yourself a favor. Count to ten. Think. Don't try to be funny. You're not. The pros aren't funny all the time. They live mundane lives too. They constantly repeat themselves, but they observe. So for you, me, and almost everybody else, shh, please, you don't have it. If you did, we would all know about it. Trust me on this one. 
but corner boys never stop babbling. Or go to an open mic and see what the world of desperation is like. Talk about being unconscious. It is sad, but they don't give up. And I have to assume people in their lives gave up on them long ago, or they just don't get enough attention and affection to satisfy the cravings they desire so strongly, or even have anything else of any worthwhile meaning or significance to do to fill the empty void in their existence. Even the many aging comic hacks and never-wases alive from the 80s somehow believe that they are still on the verge of making it. I seen them! Makes my stomach turn. That's pathetic, atrocious, and basically repellent. But there's no accounting for taste. Just awful. Just, just contemplate that great thinkers could not and cannot speak and think simultaneously for any prolonged period of time, save for a precocious few. And I mean few. Not like one in every classroom. Extemporaneous debaters are not all over the palace. Sooner or later... If any debate becomes heated, it quite often descends into ad hominem attacks on each other's character and strays from the subject matter due to clashes of ego and aggrieved senses of pride. Spitballing or impromptu thinking is not only difficult, but even if you do become adept at it, it's extremely difficult to think so quickly on your feet for more than short bursts that your brain suffers fatigue and you can't continue without a much-needed break. It's exhausting. Improvisational performers rehearse. Stand-up comics refine. Public speakers have notes. They really do. And, as Will Rogers said, if you're talking, you ain't learning. And that's part of being aware and conscious. Context. Context. Personally, I think a lot of this is biophysical and neurological. Dopamine versus serotonin. A particular slant could say cheap thrills versus well-being and peace of mind, or short-term motivation versus long-term gratification. Rowdy fans cheering on a successful athlete versus the successful, disciplined, motivated athlete devoted to constant improvement, and not chugging beer to see how many you can drink before losing control of your senses. Stuff like that is part of it all, and I am sure a good deal of philosophers have had their share of intoxicating substances as well. From Simply Psychology, serotonin versus dopamine. They're both neurotransmitters. Serotonin is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, while dopamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Serotonin regulates mood. Dopamine regulates motivation. Serotonin is associated with feelings of happiness, focus, and calm. Dopamine is associated with feelings of rewards, motivation, and being productive. Serotonin contributes to sleep and digestion. Dopamine is important for normal movement and balance. Serotonin deficiency is linked with sensitivity to pain, aggressiveness, anxiety, and depression. Dopamine deficiency is linked with sensitivity to memory loss, low sex drive, poor digestion, and poor cognition. For my part, in my experience, most, if not all, of the LGBT people I have interviewed, worked with, or pay attention to spend a tremendous and frequently inordinate amount of time of their waking lives attempting to reckon their identities with themselves, their families, particularly their parents, their work life, their circle of friends, and the world around them. 
It seems to be a huge drain on their minds and bodies, and I can see that whatever trauma, and boy, is it prevalent, has deeply impacted their consciousness. And quite often, they feel pain and seek some sort of quick rush of distracting pleasure, euphoria, one might say, and are quite susceptible to self-destructive behaviors. I reported a number of podcasts, namely The Crystal Crisis, and what LGBT people drink, and a little more about the substantially higher rate of substance abuse amongst the LGBT population. Gay men are more than 10 times more likely to use heroin than straight men. Can you believe that? 10 times! That alone is staggering. This has a tremendous impact on our collective consciousness. We drink more. We use crystal meth at an alarming rate. Crystal meth! Can you believe crystal meth people are using this garbage? What an insidious waste. I personally believe that we harm ourselves because we search for the dopamine rush instead of the serotonin. That takes a lot of effort. And if you are in chronic pain, suffering abuse feel isolated, and a host of other contributing factors, you may be caught in a trap. And whatever release or relief from the immediate environment and your own body's limitations may be the only relief you are able to pursue and obtain. So I am grateful for not only the acceptance and embrace I have received, but also that we have the Trevor Project and many more orgs to help youth and adults in dire need. Our younger community members commit suicide or have suicidal thoughts at alarming levels compared to the straight world. We are all valuable people whose lives are worth living. So, here we go. From Wikipedia, consciousness. Not to be confused with conscientiousness or conscience. Representation of consciousness from the 17th century from Robert Flood, an English physician. Consciousness, at its simplest, is the sentience or awareness of internal and external existence. Despite millennia of analyses, definitions, explanations, and debates by philosophers and scientists, consciousness remains puzzling and controversial, being at once the most familiar and also the most mysterious aspect of our lives. Perhaps the only widely agreed notion about the topic is the intuition that consciousness exists. Opinions differ about what exactly needs to be studied and explained as consciousness. Sometimes it is synonymous with the mind, and at other times, an aspect of the mind. In the past, it was one's inner life, the world of introspection, of private thought, imagination, and volition. Today, it often includes any kind of cognition, experience, feeling, or perception. It may be awareness, awareness of awareness or self-awareness either continuously changing or not. There might be different levels or orders of consciousness, or different kinds of consciousness, or just one kind with different features. Other questions include whether only humans are conscious, all animals, or even the whole universe, I think it is. The disparate range of research, notions, and speculations raises doubts about whether the right questions are being asked. Examples of the range of descriptions, definitions, and explanations are simple wakefulness, 
one sense of selfhood or soul explored by looking within, being a metaphorical stream of contents or being a mental state, mental event, or mental process of the brain, having fenera or qualia and subjectivity, being the something that it is like, have or be it, being the inner theater or the executive control system of the mind. Western philosophers since the time of Descartes and Locke have struggled to comprehend the nature of consciousness and how it fits into a larger picture of the world. These issues remain central to both continental and analytic philosophy, in phenomenology and the philosophy of mind, respectively. Some basic questions include whether consciousness is the same kind of thing as matter, whether it may ever be possible for computing machines like computers or robots to be conscious, how consciousness relates to language, how consciousness of being relates to the world of experience, the role of the self in experience, whether individual thought is possible at all, and whether the concept is fundamentally coherent. Recently, Consciousness has also become a significant topic of interdisciplinary research in cognitive science, involving fields such as psychology, linguistics, and anthropology, neuropsychology, and neuroscience. The primary focus is on understanding what it means biologically and psychologically for information to be present in consciousness, that is, on determining the neural and psychological correlates of consciousness. The majority of experiential studies assess consciousness in humans by asking subjects for a verbal report of their experiences. That is, tell me if you notice anything when I do this. Issues of interest include phenomena such as subliminal perception, blindsight, denial of impairment, and altered states of consciousness produced by alcohol and other drugs or spiritual or meditative techniques. In medicine, consciousness is assessed by observing a patient's arousal and responsiveness and can be seen as a continuum of states ranging from full alertness and comprehension through disorientation, delirium, loss of meaningful communication, and finally loss of movement in response to painful stimuli. In the late 20th century, philosophers have disagreed as to whether Aristotle ever had a concept of consciousness. Aristotle does not use any single word or terminology to name the phenomena. It is used only much later, especially by John Locke. Caston, another philosopher, contends that for Aristotle, perceptual awareness was somewhat the same as what modern philosophers call consciousness. The origin of the modern concept of consciousness is often attributed to John Locke's essay concerning human understanding, published in 1690. Locke defined consciousness as the perception of what passes in a man's own mind. His essay influenced the 18th century view of consciousness, and his definition appeared in Samuel Johnson's celebrated dictionary. Consciousness is also defined in the 1753 volume of Diderot and D'Alembert's Encyclopedia, the opinion or internal feeling that we ourselves have from what we do. Well, the dictionary definitions of the word consciousness extend through several centuries and reflect a range of seemingly related meanings with some differences that have been controversial, such as the distinction between inward awareness and perception of the physical world, or the distinction between conscious and unconscious, or the notion of a mental entity or mental activity that is not physical. 
the common usage definitions of consciousness in Webster's Third New International Dictionary from 1966 are as follows. Awareness or perception of an inward psychological or spiritual fact. Intuitively perceived knowledge of something in one's inner self. Inward awareness of an external object, state, or fact. Concerned awareness, interest, concern, often used with attributive noun, that is, class consciousness. The state or activity that is characterized by sensation, emotion, volition, or thought, mind in the broadest possible sense, something in nature that is distinguished from the physical, the totality in psychology of sensations, perceptions, ideas, attitudes, and feelings of which an individual or a group is aware at any given time or within a particular time span. Compare stream of consciousness. Wow. Waking life as that to which one returns after sleep, trance, fever, wherein all one's mental powers have returned. The part of mental life or psychic content in psychoanalysis that is immediately available to the ego. Compare preconscious and unconscious. Many philosophers and scientists have been unhappy about the futility of producing a definition that does not involve circularity or fuzziness. Oh, the fuzziness. In the Macmillan Dictionary of Psychology, Stuart Sutherland expressed a skeptical attitude more than a definition. Consciousness, the having of perceptions, thoughts, and feelings, awareness. The term is impossible to define except in terms that are unintelligible without a grasp of what consciousness means. Fathom the concept, I say! Many philosophers have argued that consciousness is a unitary concept that is understood intuitively by the majority of people in spite of the difficulty in defining it. Philosophers differ from non-philosophers in their intuitions about what consciousness is. While most people have a strong intuition for the existence of what they refer to as consciousness, skeptics argue that the intuition is false either because the concept of consciousness is intrinsically incoherent or because our intuitions about it are based on illusions. <laughs> William Lycan argued in his book Consciousness and Experience that at least eight clearly distinct type of consciousness can be identified. Organism consciousness, control consciousness, Consciousness of, state, event, consciousness, reportability, introspective consciousness, subjective consciousness, self-consciousness, and that even this list omits several more obscure forms. Mental processes such as consciousness and physical processes such as brain events seem to be correlated. However, the specific nature of the connection is unknown. The first influential philosopher to discuss the question specifically was Descartes, and the answer he gave is known as Cartesian dualism. Descartes proposed that consciousness resides within an immaterial domain he called res cogitans, the realm of thought, in contrast to the domain of material things, which he called res extensa, the realm of extension. He suggested that the interaction between these two domains occurs inside the brain, perhaps in a small midline structure called the pineal gland. Although it is widely accepted that Descartes explained the problem cogently, few later philosophers have been happy with his solution, 
and his ideas about the pineal gland have been especially ridiculed. However, no alternative solution has gained general acceptance. Proposed solutions can be divided broadly into two categories. Dualist solutions that maintain Descartes' rigid distinction between the realm of consciousness and the realm of matter, but give different answers for how the two realms relate to each other, and the monist solutions that maintain that there is really only one realm of being, of which consciousness and matter are both aspects. Each of these categories itself contains numerous variants. The two main types of dualism are a substance dualism, which holds that the mind is formed of a distinct type of substance not governed by the laws of physics, and property dualism, which holds that the laws of physics are universally valid but cannot be used to explain the mind. The three main types of monism are physicalism, which holds that the mind consists of matter organized in a particular way, idealism, which holds that only thought or experience truly exists and matter is merely an illusion, and neutral monism, which holds that both mind and matter are aspects of a distinct essence that is itself identical to neither of them. There are also, however, a large number of idiosyncratic theories that cannot cleanly be assigned to any of these schools of thought. The most commonly given answer is that we attribute consciousness to other people because we see that they resemble us in appearance and behavior. We reason that if they look like us and act like us, they must be like us in other ways, including having experiences of the sort that we do. There are, however, a variety of problems with that explanation. For one thing, it seems to violate the principle of parsimony by postulating an invisible entity that is not necessary to explain what we observe. Some philosophers, such as Daniel Dennett, in an essay titled The Unimagined Preposterousness of Zombies, argue that people who give this explanation do not really understand what they are saying. Hmm, that seems pertinent in today's cultural climate. More broadly, philosophers who do not accept the possibility of zombies generally believe that consciousness is reflected in behavior, including verbal behavior, and that we attribute consciousness on the basis of behavior. A more straightforward way of saying this is that we attribute experiences to people because of what they can do, including the fact that they can tell us about their experiences. The topic of animal consciousness is beset by a number of difficulties. It poses the problem of other minds in an especially severe form because non-human animals, lacking the ability to express human language, cannot tell humans about their experiences. Also, it is difficult to reason objectively about the question because a denial that an animal is conscious is often taken to imply that it does not feel, its life has no value, and that harming it is not morally wrong. Descartes, for example, has sometimes been blamed for mistreatment of animals due to the fact that he believed only humans have a non-physical mind. Most people have a strong intuition that some animals, such as cats and dogs, yes, are conscious, while others, such as insects, are not. But the sources of this intuition are not obvious and are often based on personal interactions with pets and other animals they have observed, because we love them. Thomas Nagel argues that while a human might be able to imagine what it is like to be a bat by taking the bat's point of view, it would still be impossible to know what it is like for a bat to be a bat. The idea of an artifact made conscious is an ancient theme of mythology, appearing, for example, in the Greek myth of Pygmalion, who carved a statue that was magically brought to life, and in medieval Jewish stories of the golem, a magically animated homunculus built of clay.
However, the possibility of actually constructing a conscious machine was probably first discussed by Ada Lovelace in a set of notes written in 1842 about the analytical engine invented by Charles Babbage, a precursor never built to modern electronic computers. Lovelace was essentially dismissive of the idea that a machine such as the analytical engine could think in a human-like way. She wrote, It is desirable to guard against the possibility of exaggerated ideas that might arise as to the powers of the analytical engine. The analytical engine has no pretensions whatever to originate anything. It can do whatever we know how to order it to perform. It can follow analysis, but it has no power of anticipating any analytical relations or truths. Its province is to assist us in making available what we are already acquainted with. Another idea that has drawn attention for several decades is that consciousness is often associated with high-frequency gamma-band oscillations in brain activity. Dr. Bruce Banner, belted by gamma rays, changes into the Incredible Hulk. It's all vibrations, as Tesla said. There are some brain states in which consciousness seems to be absent, including dreamless sleep or coma. There are also a variety of circumstances that can change the relationship between the mind and the world in less drastic ways, producing what are known as altered states of consciousness. Some altered states occur naturally. Others can be produced by drugs or brain damage. Altered states can be accompanied by changes in thinking, disturbances in the sense of time, feeling of loss of control, changes in emotional expression, alternations in body image, and changes in meaning or significance. The two most widely accepted altered states are sleep and dreaming. Although dream sleep and non-dream sleep appear very similar to an outside observer, each is associated with a distinct pattern of brain activity. Immanuel Kant asserted that the world as we perceive it is organized according to a set of fundamental intuitions which include object, we perceive the world as a set of distinct things, shape, quality, color, warmth, etc., space, distance, direction, and location, and time. Some of these constructs, such as space and time, correspond to the way the world is structured by the laws of physics. For others, the correspondence is not as clear. Stream of Consciousness William James is usually credited with popularizing the idea that human consciousness flows like a stream in his Principles of Psychologies in 1890. According to James, the stream of thought is governed by five characteristics. Every thought tends to be part of a personal consciousness. Within each personal consciousness, thought is always changing. Within each personal consciousness, thought is sensibly continuous. It always appears to deal with objects independent of itself. It is interested in some parts of these objects to the exclusion of others. It is not a type of stand-up comedy. A similar concept appears in Buddhist philosophy, expressed by the Sanskrit term Sita Samtana, which is usually translated as mind stream or mental continuum. Buddhist teachings describe that consciousness manifests moment to moment as sense impressions and mental phenomena that are continuously changing. The purpose of the Buddhist practice of mindfulness is to understand the inherent nature of the consciousness and its characteristics. In the West, 
the primary impact of the idea has been on literature rather than science. Stream of consciousness as a narrative mode means writing in a way that attempts to portray the moment-to-moment thoughts and experiences of a character. The technique perhaps had its beginning in the monologues of Shakespeare's plays and reached its fullest development in the novels of James Joyce and Virginia Woolf, although it has been used by many other noted writers. To most philosophers, the word consciousness connotes the relationship between the mind and the world. To writers on spiritual or religious topics, it frequently connotes the relationship between mind and God, or the relationship between the mind and deeper truths that are thought to be more fundamental than the physical world. The mystical psychiatrist Richard Maurice Buck, author of the 1901 book Cosmic Consciousness, a study in the evolution of the human mind, distinguished between three types of consciousness. Simple consciousness, awareness of the body, possessed by many animals. Self-consciousness, awareness of being aware, possessed only by humans. And cosmic consciousness, awareness of the life and order of the universe, possessed only by humans who are enlightened. Many more examples could be given, such as the various levels of spiritual consciousness presented by Prem Saran Satsangi and Stuart Hameroff. Another thorough account of the spiritual approach is Ken Wilber's 1977 book, The Spectrum of Consciousness, a comparison of Western and Eastern ways of thinking about the mind. Wilbur described consciousness as a spectrum with ordinary awareness at one end and more profound types of awareness at higher levels. Hey, hey, phew, put that in your pipe and smoke it. Thanks for listening. See you next time. And as the kitties say, peace out. Thank you.